Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is Call Number with American Libraries. <music> 2020 is over, and not soon enough, am I right? You don't need me to recap this year's tumultuous events. But one thing that remained constant is the incredible caliber of authors that we here at American Libraries talk to year after year. Today, on call number with American Libraries, we look back on some of our favorite interviews of 2020, ones that didn't make it into our usual podcast episodes. Conversations with Julia Alvarez, Chanel Miller, Jeff Henderson, Maya and Alex Shibutani, Echo Brown, and Yagi Yassi that reveal their love of libraries, books, and much more. But first, a word from a sponsor. The American Library Association's Midwinter Virtual Event is right around the corner. Join us January 22nd through 26th for five days of speakers, programs, meetings, and more, all from the safety and comfort of home. This year's speakers include Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha N. Blaine, Joy Harjo, Emmanuel Acho, Ethan Hawke, Ruby Bridges, Max Brooks, Cicely Tyson, Ziggy Marley, and many more. There's also the Symposium on the Future of Libraries, with sessions on future trends to inspire innovation. News You Can Use, which offers updates that highlight new research, innovation, and advances in libraries, and more. Registration is open now, but please note, Registration closes on January 15th, so act now. Register and find information on all the speakers and programs at 2021.alamidwinter.org. We'll see you there. Dominican-American poet, novelist, and essayist Julia Alvarez celebrated the release of Afterlife this year, her first adult novel since 2006. She spoke with American Libraries Associate Editor Sally Ann Price this spring about the important role that libraries played in her life as a young immigrant girl in the U.S. and more. You know, when we came to this country, uh, I came from a dictatorship. There's no such thing, no such institution as a public library. Uh, people that have money might have a library, but even that was very circumscribed in a dictatorship because only certain censored books were allowed to be owned and allowed in the country. So to come to this country and not have money, um, and you know, back then there weren't the bookstores we have now, that was you know, not, not, not an institution out there, uh, but to have a public library, we were in New York City, and it was just amazing access. And I remember one of the things I, I kept saying to mommy, because we had come to a dictatorship, from a dictatorship where everything was policed. And I said, but mommy, they let us take the books home? How will they, how will they know? Do they arrest people for now? You know, I couldn't believe that there was this, you know, transaction going on. And I was not a reader growing up. Kids love to hear this. I flunked every grade through fifth grade. I hated books because they were dictatorship books, they were censored books, they were dry texts. And I had a teacher who sent me to the library and librarians in the library 
who, who, my teacher knew I loved story. I didn't like to read, but I loved story. I had come from an oral culture. And she began to connect me with books that told great stories. So it's sort of like all the family members that had been the great storytellers, I could now find them between the covers of books. So libraries and access to them, when we had no money, even had we known about bookstores, which, like I said, there weren't that many, uh, were really, they were an amazing resource um, for us. And you know, it was a place, the playground was not safe for us. You know, bullies calling us spick and go back to school, except in the little circle of my wonderful teacher was not very safe. Um, and I didn't, there weren't any other Latino kids in my, in my class back then. And so libraries, though, seemed a very safe place. Like people were all there engaged. I almost felt like it was like a cathedral for reading. You know, people engaged in this, and back then there weren't all these devices, really engaged in the process of reading together. And it just felt safe and quiet. And oh my God, the access to so many books, you know, so many books. A little anxiety came with it, like, I'll never, I'll never read all these books, you know? What message would you have, perhaps, for someone in the position you were once in, uh, curious, maybe possessed of an experience or a story wanting to share, and not really knowing, uh, facing obstacles, or not being sure if there's room for your voice, or if your voice I... will be heard? Well, I, I have been thinking a lot about that because um, even after I started to be a reader and then I thought, well, you know, if you become a really fervent reader, you realize there's one book that isn't on the shelf, the one that you can write. So I wanted to be a part of this bigger circle uh, of storytellers, and, but I, there weren't any books but in libraries. In, in the curriculum by people like me or about people like me. It was, as a fellow um, uh, ethnic writer told me recently, because she said, we've come through, we've, we've been survivors of the pre-multicultural world. <laughs> and, and it's true, you know, it, that term wasn't invented. So it's, I think great books are for everybody um, because you become the other and it doesn't, yeah, you know, I, I never, I read, I read uh, Shakespeare, and I could be this indecisive prince. You know, I could read Maya Angelou, and I could be a slave girl. I mean, I, I became others. But in terms of a message of, are you part of this legacy of storytelling, which is part of our human family, and you never find someone like you in there, you start to feel like you you're not invited to the big table, you know. As Langston Hughes said, you're, you belong in the kitchen, you know, of the other writers. So I think it's an important thing to find, you know, to have um, libraries, uh, have that multiplicity of text, and for, and for writers to know that, you know, you could say, I, I was talking to another fellow Latina writer and I said, um, you know, it's, we thought that we would open the road and then it was going to be open. And it's, 
it's a constant vigilant struggle, you know, um, to keep it open, to, to be ever more inclusive and allow more people in, and to think of your work not only as your work, but as seeds you're casting into the future. That wonderful Mexican saying, um, they tried to bury us, they did not know we were seeds. Chanel Miller was at the center of a widely publicized sexual assault case at Stanford University, in which members of the media and public fixated on assailant Brock Turner's swim times and how a guilty verdict would negatively impact his future. In her memoir, Know My Name, Miller reclaims her identity through a narrative of trauma, hope, and survival. She spoke with American Library's managing editor Tara Dinkowski at the ALA Midwinter meeting in Philadelphia last January about why she decided to write her book. In your book, you refer to art and writing as your steady ground, but I imagine it was a complicated decision to write a memoir about your sexual assault and reclaim your name um, in front of the world. Could you talk a little bit about that decision? I think what's unique about my case is that my story was being told repeatedly by external sources. I never had control whether I wanted to disclose it or not. Like it or not, it was out there in the media. And so I thought, eventually, I have to be able to craft my own narrative in order to own my own story. So that helped propel me to tackle the subject. Um, I wanted to make it clear how I felt about everything and what it was like for me as a person and not just a subject being reported on. Also in the book, you talk about survivors and the recognition that they have for one another, the not needing to explain, um, and you connect that to the larger Me Too movement. Um, I was just wondering if people who have read your book, if they've contacted you, if they've entrusted you with their own stories, um, what kind of feedback you're getting, and, and what that community might be like for you. Mm. I've received countless messages, so many letters, I've kept every single letter. They were vital to me when I was writing the book because often it could be so miserable and lonely to be cooped up in your room putting word after word, but the letters reminded me why I was doing what I was doing. To receive somebody's story is such a gift. To be entrusted, is that what? Entrusted, yes. Um, just to watch them open up and deliver something because they understand that it's not their job to conceal it is such a relief to me and it feels like I have succeeded. What made you want to pursue a degree in literature? Uh, were there any books that um, were particularly revelatory to you um, growing up or when you were deciding what to do? Mm -hmm. To be honest, I started off as an art major but oil paints were too expensive. Changing mediums was so expensive, and so I thought, oh, writing, I just need a pen, <laughs> and I can afford used books. And growing up, I always loved writing. My second grade teacher <clears throat> had a publishing house. Well, it was a quote-unquote publishing house, 
and laminated our books and we had to write author's page, dedication page, um, and it made me feel like a legitimate author from the very beginning. And so I've always wanted to fulfill this dream. I just never envisioned that it would happen this way. What is your relationship with libraries? <laughs> uh, honestly, when, if you ever feel lonely during lunchtime, it's a wonderful refuge, right? <laughs> um, to me, it represents safety and peace. It's an introvert's haven. I love that it develops empathy. It's a place you can go to garner understanding of other people's lives or deeper understanding of your own. Um, it's so valuable to protect that space, to have such a rooted place in every community that's open to everybody. Um, your book shines a light on some of society's greatest failings, but I found the book surprisingly hopeful. And um, I was just wondering, what are some things that give you hope for the future? If you look at the book along every leg of the journey, there was somebody there who was assisting me. I would never have been able to get here on my own. I have been propelled here because people have stuck by me no matter what phase I was going through. I always feel hopeful because of the people I get to connect with, because of the way they make me feel. And that feeling is much stronger than any of the angst I've been dealt over the past few years. Prior to becoming an award-winning chef and best-selling author, Jeff Henderson was in prison. In 1988, he was convicted for drug trafficking and conspiracy, and he remained in prison until 1996. Discovering books while incarcerated was a transformative event for him. He spoke with Tara Dinkowski in Philadelphia about how that experience changed him, feedback he's received as an author, and more. So I read that you discovered the library while in prison and you read your first book while incarcerated. Could you describe that experience and how it changed you? Wow, you know, growing up in the inner city, there were always libraries, but never really went to them unless there was some type of event where they were giving out free candy or free food, I would go. I never valued books before, never owned a book as a kid, but in school there was one book as a little boy I read and it was called James and the Giant Peach. It was the only book that ever had interest to me. But in my, during my incarceration, uh, I got really exposed to the library, you know, trying to fight my case and dealing with jailhouse lawyers and that's where all the literature was, magazines, National Geographics. And as a young man incarcerated, the first book that a man named MZ gave me was a book called Black Men, Obsolete, Single, Dangerous. And as I began to read this book, it really opened my eyes to learn about African-American men who weren't street hustlers and drug dealers, but doctors, attorneys, and intellectuals, and global thinkers. And you know, discovering reading, it was like my information pipeline to the outside world. What inspired you to write your, your book, Cooked, about your life experiences? And in the decade since it's been released, um, what, uh, what has been some of the most meaningful feedback you've received on that book? 
Wow, Cooked was interesting how it came about. You know, I was working as a chef, executive chef, Cafe Bellagio in Las Vegas. And one day this literary agent named Mike Saltis from New York called me and said, Jeff, I, I heard your story. You have a, a powerful story. Are you interested in writing a book? This guy had a culinary, a cookbook culinary business. And I thought about it and I said, sure. And he came out, we wrote a proposal and cooked just took the food world and, you know, the country by storm. I mean, I got on Oprah, you know, when the book came out and stuff. And the, writing the book was a healing period for me. You know, I dealt with a lot of trauma, you know, generational trauma, trauma from my young life growing up in Southeast San Diego and L.A., but also the trauma of incarceration. So when I was writing that out, it allowed me to understand why certain things happen in my life, but it was life-changing for me. Yes, writing my truth. What inspired you to do a reality cooking show with uh, at-risk youth and, and youth who have had uh, hardships such as yours? Well, it's interesting. Uh, when Cook first came out, I went on Oprah, and uh, I was pretty excited about cooking for her and the world to say, hey, you know, I'm not just a great story of transformation, but I'm a great cook. And she wouldn't let me cook. She wasn't interested in my food. And the show was about resilience. And what I didn't know at the time, Oprah was giving me a platform, a platform to canvas this country, to work with young people and teach them, you know, about middle class values and taking many of the transferable skills that one may have used in crime or learned as a kid, you know, into the workforce. And that's what it's been about me, you know. And I got the call and, uh, for Food Network one day, you know, I was just, you know, flying across the country, landed, phone ring, it was a vice president, Food Network, says, Chef Jeff, we heard about your story, i uh, love to do a cooking show with you, and I was like, wow, everything just happening. Like, so I said, hmm, here's an opportunity for me to use the power of food to change lives like food changed my life and reading in prison. So I said, let's do the Chef Jeff Project, where we take six at-risk young people, and we, I launched a catering company in Beverly Hills and use the catering company as a platform to teach middle class values and life skills and culinary and professional development with these young folks. And it was a dream come true. And I've continued that uh, since that show some seven years ago, uh, what I do now when I'm not in the kitchen cooking. Um, any updates on the film adaptation of your book, Cooked? And uh, what are your feelings about an actor portraying you on the screen? Wow, interesting. You know, everyone's asking me about the movie project with Will. Um, after a couple hours after I was on Oprah, I got the call from Will Smith, Sony Columbia, and they invited me up to the set of I Am Legend in Brooklyn, New York. So I got to meet the dog. I met Will Smith. He was real skinny, obviously, during the movie. He was starving to death, running out of food. And I got to you know, spend some time with him a couple days on the set. And it was very interesting to me uh, why Will wanted to portray me in this movie. Because it was a happy ending. You know, Not often is there a drug dealer prison movie where people change and people find redemption and hope in the most unlikely place, which is prison. And uh, I was excited to talk to him about that. You know, uh, we talked about talking about the social ills in inner city America, the impact of drugs, generational poverty, trauma, you know, education system, you know, uh, the criminal culture in black and brown communities. And those are some great areas that uh, we'll be able to really hit hard and educate people. And that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, every, anybody can change. 
And the book, the story, the movie wouldn't be about, you know, transformation, you know, and achieving, you know, the American dream. Maya and Alex Shibutani have a special relationship. How many siblings can say that together they've won two bronze medals in ice dancing, figure skating with a ballroom twist, at the Olympic level, which the Shibutanis did at the 2018 Winter Games? They spoke with American libraries in Philadelphia about the impact that libraries had on their lives growing up and more. Especially when we were kids, we have such fond memories of visiting libraries. We grew up in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, and I just know that even before we started skating, we'd always visit the library with our parents. And then once we started skating, we'd often go there for entertainment, to get books, but then also to find music. Yeah, we had tremendous access to libraries growing up, both at school and then also during our free time. And with books and audiobooks, I mean, we started with books on tape, yeah. like literal tape. Uh, and so the resources that the libraries that we had exposed us to so many amazing things. Yeah, there's so much information that is at your library. And so, um, you know, we've definitely benefited from that during the course of our lives. And uh, even now, there's never, you know, I would say you can never stop learning. And so we always challenge ourselves and look to learn new things. And um, what inspired you to write a book of your own? In our sport, storytelling is a huge component, so we've always really enjoyed that. And so then when we, when we had the opportunity to share this story about another set of siblings, it was a really amazing experience for us. Yeah, we have one creative process that's sort of in place over the course of many years in our partnership. And so we were really excited to try this in a new medium and tell a story that I think we would have really enjoyed when we were kids, but also that we would have a fun time telling now. Author Echo Brown's debut book, Black Girl Unlimited, The Remarkable Story of a Teenage Wizard, is a unique autobiography, one that combines Brown's own life story with magical realism and fantasy elements. She spoke with American Library's senior editor Amy Carlton in Philadelphia about why she decided to tell her story in this way, her inspirations, and more. Initially, we were thinking that we were just going to do a memoir, or maybe we would just do some kind of work of fiction that didn't have me in it. Um, and then really, just what kind of started to happen was the book just kind of channeled through. So the first line came, my mother is a wizard, and already that has both elements there of the memoir and the magic. Um, and so for me, it kind of was more that that felt like what needed to be told, rather than us making creative decisions one way or the other. I think if I had decided myself, um, I probably just would have written a memoir, but it just kind of came out that way that it felt like it needed to have like this magical element to it. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the, the world building? So you have um, elements of wizards and magical realism, but also themes of resurrection and forgiveness. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, uh, about how the, the world of that book came to be? Yeah, I think um, once we decided that it was going to be memoir with magic, it was really a question of how we were going to uh, integrate that magic to make it feel real and not too fantastical, right? We really worked hard on that. Um, and so we really just kind of wa wanted it to feel like it was just part of her everyday life. Like she not only is going through these very real struggles of poverty and uh, sexism and all these different kinds of things, but she also has this tremendous power. Um, 
So yeah, so it just, it, we just wanted it to feel kind of natural and integrated and that this is just her reality. So we were really kind of walking this line between having her be a regular person, having her be this amazing kind of wizard person and having the magic still feel, um, you know, realistic and uh, integrated well. Um, another common theme in the book is the tension between creation and destruction. Mm. Um, <clears throat> what does that mean to you and how has that played out in your life? Well, I think for me, the biggest thing when you uh, mention creation and destruction, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is kind of my own healing process because for most of my life, I feel like I've been in the, dest the destructive um, side of internal whatever where I'm just fighting my own energy and now I feel like I'm more... Uh, in the healing, constructive side. Um, and I think that's also the journey that the character takes in the book is she's kind of fighting herself. She doesn't understand what's happening. All these terrible things are happening to her, but still she makes it to that other side and she's able to rise and she's able to be in this kind of more positive energy of, you know, blossoming and growing. Um, who are your inspirations as a performer and as a writer? Um, as a writer, definitely Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison. Uh, I, st I had a teacher that exposed me to Toni Morrison at a very early age when I was like in the 11th grade. And uh, it's hard to read Toni Morrison when you're like 16. You have no idea, you know, these, these intense themes. Um, but now that I revisit her as an adult, I just see the brilliance and I'm super inspired by, you know, her voice and her creative vision and what she was able to create in her work. Uh, as a performer, I guess, you know, the most, okay, it's going to be funny, but the person that I'm most inspired by is Beyonce. <laughs> you know, because what other performer is so, like, she's like a powerhouse on stage, and as a performer myself, in a different way, I understand exactly what she's doing a lot of times when she's feeding off the energy of the audience, uh, and just what it takes to do that kind of intense perform performance, so I would say Beyonce. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, can you talk about the role of libraries in your life? Yeah, so you know, um, <clears throat> when I was younger, I actually spent most of my time in the library uh, because, you know, I grew up in a pretty crazy place and uh, there, there was a rec center, there were a couple other places where young people hung out, but that really wasn't my scene. So I spent a lot of time at the Cleveland Public Library, uh, at smaller branches, just kind of glancing through the books. Um, talking to some other people that were there. So it really was, uh, for me, a place of safety in the community that I grew up with, and it sheltered me in a lot of ways and exposed me to a lot of different works of art, to speakers that came in. Uh, so that had a really integral role in my life and young development. Author Yagyazi's book, Transcendent Kingdom, explores the Gahanian-American immigrant experience through the eyes of a neuroscientist who turns to a discipline called optogenetics to make sense of family tragedies and upbringing immersed in the American South. She spoke with Sally Ann Price this summer about what she hopes readers take away from her book and the role of fiction in today's national discourse. Um, well, one of the things that I hope that this book provides people is um, just kind of an understanding that when we look at um, issues such as drug abuse, 
um, drug use disorders, um, mental illness, we should do so with a lot more compassion um, than perhaps we have been in the past. Um, and particularly on the on the drug use disorder front, um, I one of my hopes that we start to think about it as a healthcare issue um, and not an issue that um, that needs to be heavily policed, um, where people who are suffering are sent to prison, um, and rather to understand that some of these drugs, um, opioids in particular, um, are actually very much affecting the brain um, and, and therefore need to be treated, um, treated rather than criminalized. Um, I guess as both um, a writer and as a reader, what do you see as the role of fiction in the sort of national discourse that's been happening in recent weeks? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think I've certainly been seeing a lot of people picking up um, nonfiction books on race, um, these kind of um, what uh, the writer, Dr. Michelle, Dr. Lauren Michelle Jackson has called the race readers. Um, mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's clearer what those kinds of books have, um, what role those kinds of books have to play in this, um, especially for, for white readers who perhaps haven't been accustomed to thinking about race, thinking about anti-racism. Um, but the role of fiction, I think, is, is less clear, um, but just as important in that, um, but you can't like I don't know if you should or can go into reading a novel thinking I'm reading this to to be anti-racist like that feels mm -hmm. that feels like an inorganic and probably troublesome way to to approach troubling way to approach reading a book um and I I hate when people say things like it like humanizes people or it like teaches you empathy I think you should already already see black people and black characters as humans um, and you shouldn't have to use books to to learn how to empathize um, mm -hmm. but at the same time I think one of the things that that fiction provides us that no other medium can um, is the opportunity to kind of step into the consciousness of other people um, albeit um, albeit invented people. Um, I think that's probably invaluable right now. Um, I don't know. I think the the more the more fiction that we read, um, the more opportunities we have to kind of think about people um, fully differently, um, to recognize beauty, um, the, the better off we we always will be. That wraps another episode of Call Number with American Libraries. Join us in the new year as we continue our look at measures being taken by libraries to make their spaces safer during the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you have something to say to us here at the podcast? Well, we want to hear from you. New to Call Number, you can reach us directly and tell us your thoughts and opinions about our shows and more in your own voice. Call 312-857-6761 and leave a message for us. They'll be featured in future episodes. Again, that's 312-857-6761. We want to hear from each and every one of you. As always, I'm Phil Moorhart, and this is Call Number with American Libraries. Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs>